Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Ray West. You listen to my friend Jay Scott on the Hooks Rock Podcast. Peace, y'all. Everybody, it's Jay Scott. This is another episode of the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast, now part of Pantheon Podcast Network. Hope you're doing well out there. Hope you're staying safe and staying healthy. I say the same thing at the beginning of every episode, and hopefully one day soon I won't have to say that anymore, or it won't have the meaning that it does now because it's just a crazy time out there. I know. Numbers are decreasing all over the country, which is a good thing, but there's still a lot of worry. There's still a lot of unknown, but we're here for you. We're here talking music. We're here to be the escape for you to talk some music commentary and talk some new music. And I'd like to welcome in our next guest, which is a band that I absolutely, absolutely am stoked about. And the band is The Black Moods. And the guest is lead singer, lead guitarist, Josh Kennedy. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm a huge fan of the band, and I'm really excited to get to know more about you and what you guys are all about. Awesome, man. Well, uh, let's go at it. (laughs) Well, we always start the same way every time we have a a brand new guest on the show, and that is the essence of the podcast, which is just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance, 
that hooked you on rock and roll? What was it for you? Oh, man. Tuffy. Uh, you know, I grew up around it. My dad was always playing at his what he was in a band all growing up. So I just remember being around it since the time I was two to whenever. So I was exposed to a lot of everything from, you know, when I first, I first learned uh, midnight, uh, midnight special by CCR. That was like the first three chords my dad taught me. But I think the, the first time I like bought my own record, it was CD, you know, uh, good times, bad times by Led Zeppelin. When I heard that intro, just blew my 12 year old mind. It's pretty impressive. It's such a powerful intro with the, you know, the drums and the guitar. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's so intense. Right. And, and at that time, yeah, you know, the drums were not played like that. No. And he only had one kick drum pedal too, which is, I just couldn't believe that a foot could move that fast. But I mean, it's a strong second because, I saw Wayne's World in uh, in uh, the theater when it came out when I was a little kid or whatever. And uh, that's the first time I heard Foxy Lady. So when Garth was dancing in that scene in Wayne's World, yeah. I, I hit, hit my friend. I'm like, what is happening right now? And he said, oh, it's Jimi Hendrix. And I had no clue. So, And that was about the same time I discovered both of those. You know, it's interesting you mentioned, so, too, with the Creedence Clearwater Revival. Um my son, who's 16, is really into rock and roll, and he loves a lot of the new stuff, loves you guys. And he loves CCR, and he's so proud that he has all the CCR albums on CD. He's always like, Dad, check out the stack, man. <laughs> and I just I have to keep reminding him that these songs were made in, 19, in the late 60s, you know, and here you are in 2021 listening to, to this band at the age of 16, I said, that is greatness right there. That is stuff of legend. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty impressive. That's, that's also a lot of why, you know, I, I like the, the music means so much because that's going to last a lot longer than I am, you know? So that gives me some kind of comfort in, you know, when you're dead and gone, that people can still listen to your, you know, to your voice and your guitar playing and your songs, you know? however many years later, like CCR. I mean, think about that. I think that band only was, I think they, they were just, it was a, such a short period and such a, so prolific in those short amount of time because they, they made like two records a year sometimes, you know, if, if not more. That was a whole different animal back in the day. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, you think about who we just lost too, Eddie Van Halen this past October. And, uh, you know, the fact that we can still listen to his music means so much. It does help the healing process when we lose, you know, one of our our heroes, our, you know, one of the giants in music that we can go anytime we want and we can go listen to to him play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a tough one, man. That's one of those guys that thinks going to be around forever. <laughs> yeah. 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 So where did Such it go? Pioneer. Where did it go from there? You mentioned you know CCR, and you talked about you know Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. What was the next step in your evolution as an artist? Uh, well, that's that's about the time I started playing uh, "Cocaine" by JJ Kale and Eric Clapton over and over for about two solid years in my bedroom, which uh, my mom can't stand to hear the words "cocaine," <laughs> the word "cocaine" or anything clapped in at this point because I just 
wore it out when I was a little kid. Um, so I went to kind of that, and uh, that's when I just locked myself in my room, and you know, when everybody else was out, you know, playing basketball and all that kind of stuff, I just started going nuts on guitar, and it was every day after school, and I would play up until I'd fall asleep with the thing, and so I could think about it. And then, and then we get to the point to where it's uh, fans like Nirvana started coming out, and Stone Temple Pilots, and Counting Crows and Jim Blossoms, they're all across the board for me. And so I happened to be in my room playing. I, I was listening to Time Pieces by Eric Clapton over and over again because it was his greatest hit that came out that I stole from my dad. I didn't steal, you know, he got me have it or whatever. But as I was sitting there doing that, the American Music Awards were on and the Jim Blossoms were on there playing Hey Jealousy. And so my dad hollered at me. He's like, Hey, Bub, come in here. That's what my family calls me. It's Bub. And they, I come running in there and he said, this is a good band. This is a, they had good songs. You can do this. You can, this is something to look forward to. And uh, look, you know, there's a little bit of growth just as a songwriter. And so that's when I started getting into songwriting and I really decided that I was going to play guitar for the Jim Blossoms whenever I <laughs> could move out, move out of the small town of Wheaton, Missouri, you know? So that's when we really got into that. And I really, you know, started writing my own songs and that kind of thing. I just, I wasn't so much on the, uh, virtuos, you know, like the, like the, cause I love Van Halen and all that stuff, but it, that just seems so far away from anything that I could play, you know, that I really got, started diving more into the songwriting aspect of things. So. As far as your palette, you know, and it was developing, what was, what were you looking for? What did you need out of music, you know, to get it, to get influenced? Uh, you know, I can't even tell you because whatever it was, I was feeling since I was two years old. I just remember it just, it just, cause it, you know, I can tell you too, it wasn't because of the chicks or, you know, it wasn't the girls or. Don't or let Gene Simmons hear that. Aspect. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know. Believe me. I've, I've had a couple of conversations with him and it just, it's shocking because I, I come from a, a genuine place of loving music because it was always around my family. They, my dad, man, they'd always, after their gigs, because they were weekend warriors, you know, they'd play Friday and Saturday and they all had day jobs. But they would all re- always rehearse the house. And so it was just this feeling that I had. And I saw one of the camaraderie between these four four guys. You could just walk into a room and you know they were a band and they were together. You know, you were never by yourself. And so I love that aspect of the band. But as far as the music goes, it's just, it's just something that made the way it made me feel like nothing else from I don't, the time I was born till you know, and all that other stuff comes later for me. It wasn't anything about you know really being cool or or popular or or you know getting a girl. It was I was content just staying in my bedroom and playing my guitar until my fingers bled. You know, you mentioned Clapton, and you mentioned you know not really being influenced by, you know, the guys that were playing fast and playing all these different up and, you know, notes up and down the fretboard. As far as that guitar goes, was it tone? Was it feel? What was it? What was, what attracted you to the guitar? And all the above. The tones, like, that they were getting, especially, the, you know, Jeff Beck group and, and all those Zeppelin records, it, it, was, it was that way, but it was more of the looseness I liked about it because at some point, you know, some of Paige's playing, you almost have to be, you're wondering if he was 
if he was hitting the right notes or if he was, that's what he was going for. It just kind of spontaneously came out of him. And, and that's what I like. Um, I'm not, I'm not that strong at math. <laughs> so, you know, any kind of music doesn't come to me in, in that way. Mathematically, it comes to me, it just comes out of me. And, uh, so it was just, I think it was that overall looseness and the soul behind the way those guys were playing. Cause they were big, big blues guys, you know, into all that, you know, muddy waters and BB King and that kind of stuff. So, and then that eventually got me into that, you know, I'm definitely, I'm into the blues aspect of the things because of the way the, the, you know, the British rock guys interpreted it for me. Cause I wouldn't have just as been, you know, being a 12, 13 year old kid, I just wasn't going to get into, you know, listening to Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and stuff. It took a little bit for it to be, uh, you know, fed to me in a certain way to, to get, but all those guys are just delivered with, with, you know, soul. That's the way I, they, they jive, but <laughs> you know, yeah, I've always kind of fallen right in the middle. Like, I love listening to, you know, guys like Eddie Van Halen. One of the first things I ever heard was Eruption as a seven-year-old kid, and I was just mesmerized. And, you know, the guys that came after that, I just, you know, like the George Lynch's and, and you know, those Randy guys. Randy Rhodes. Yeah, I love, yeah, yeah I love that. But then, you know, growing up in Chicago, blues was always a heavy influence on what I listened to because it was all around all the time, especially in the yeah. early eighties and in, in the late seventies and, you know, listening to people like Otis Rush and magic Sam and muddy waters and, and players like that, you know, really kind of brought in my palate at a very young age. And even though I always went down that rock path, I always, always fall back to the blues. I always can just listen to that stuff for hours and it just, you know, anyone that tells you that the blues sounds the same hasn't listened to the blues because it's so different right. by who's playing it. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And Buddy Guy's one of those cats, too. Oh, oh man. No one fantastic. Bends, no one bends a string like Buddy Guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he's amazing. So, as far as songwriting goes, you know, when, you're, when you started to put pen to paper and write lyrics, was there a song that inspired you to write? Uh, you know, as far as being inspired by certain specific songs, uh, I don't really know because uh, I, the Jim Blossoms were a big, were a big influence on me because once that new Miserable Experience record came out, I was just addicted to that. And they have a song called Found Out About You that just lyrically just blows my mind and and uh, the subtlety of it but the way that paints the picture that kind of thing that that really turned me on you know the most but then you got songs like stairway to heaven that is just so you know just gargantuan seeming it's i can't say there's like one song lyrically because my favorite songs are from one into the other tom petty huge influence on us you know um running down a dream was one of those songs that i immediately latched onto when it came out and um, we did a cover actually of uh, "I Need to Know" by Tom Petty, and it's such a just a Howard, you know, rock pop song. It's, it's incredible, and I think it's only like two and a half minutes long. So, and where you have you know "Story to Heaven," I think it's like six or something like that. And "Hotel California," that's one that really you know, and people can be burnt out as much as they want on it because it's played all the time, but you cannot beat the story that it tells, and it paints a 
a great picture. You know, the Eagles were fantastic at doing that, are fantastic at doing that. But, um, yeah, that I would say as a Hotel California lyrics are, are up there as one of the big inspirations as far as, you know, that's how you write a song type of situation. Do you write about personal experiences? Do you write about observations? Where do you fall? Like, well, how, where do you get your inspiration? Both. You know, I've, I've written songs about friends, situations with their girlfriends or, uh, you know, the addictions and stuff that they might be going through, whether it's drugs or otherwise. It, it, it goes both ways. And I find the songs that tend to be more autobiographical, maybe. That, that they don't, I don't intend them to be, but when I stop and look back at the whole piece when it's done, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess I was going through that situation at the time, but I didn't necessarily sit down to write it like that. The band is Black Moods. The album was Sunshine, released in 2020. What is the history of the band? Uh, well, I grew up in Wheaton, Missouri, which is a small town in the Ozarks. Uh, population, I think now the population is 697. wasn't much bigger than that when I was there. And uh, I lived there for 19 years. I went to the, our, you know, there was 27 in my graduating class, I believe. So really small. It was kind of like, you know, there's more churches than stoplights. There's no stoplights, I guess. <laughs> they just got a street signs a few years ago, so I never knew what street I lived on until I went back to visit. But uh, So I grew up there where, grew up around, you know, like you said, everything from Merle Haggard to CCR, you know, to Van Halen, uh, Zeppelin, all that stuff. But it got to the point to where, you know, you could obviously tell there's not a big budding rock scene in, you know, a small town like that. So uh, I found a, a school out, and I was just going through uh, these towns and or these schools I found in the back of Rolling Stone magazine, and one of them happened to be the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in Tempe, Arizona. And I kind of grew up in Missouri, where you had all the seasons. And going to there's another school in Atlanta, and I'm like, well, I think Atlanta still has winter, so let's try <laughs> Phoenix, you know. And I wound up coming out here. There's a funny story behind that too, because I had met the singer of the Jim Blossoms. Uh, a, a year or so before I moved out and he had said if you're ever in if you're ever in Phoenix come and look me up I met him after a show one night me and the, my band at the time and uh, you know a year went by and I didn't think about it and then I went, when I found out the school was in Tempe that's where the Boston's were from so this whole thing and I was 19 years old so I was super excited and I thought I'll come out here go to school and I'll find Robin and I can you know finally play guitar for the Jim Blossoms well I came out here and they had been broken up by then, but I did see where Robin was playing an acoustic set on Mill Avenue at the club that they all started in. So I went down there and met him, but I was underage, so they threw me out of the bar. But he had told me, he's like, I have a studio in town. If you want to come intern, you know, come and look me up. Well, they threw me out before his set was over, so I didn't get a chance to meet up with him. Fast forward 10 months later, and... uh I'm getting ready to move to Nashville to do to go to work at a uh, at a school out there. Uh, I know I'm interning at a studio. I'm sorry. And my last day of school, there was a flyer up on the wall at the, on the bulletin board at school, and it said "Wanted Conservatory Student from, from Missouri, Smokey Van Required." 
well, we had gotten him stoned <laughs> when I met him in Missouri. So I knew what he meant by Smokey Van. So I called him up and turns out he's been looking for me and I wanted to stay in here and intern in his studio. Well, then as I started entering there, I started writing more and doing my own demos and playing around Phoenix with different guys and bands. And that's where I met Chico. And then we, we started kind of doing more stuff together and, you know, fast forward a couple of bass players later, we finally meet Jordan and he, he moved from Ohio to California. So he was playing in a band in LA. They had come and opened up for us in Scottsdale. And when we had bass player issues, we knew we wanted him. So we, reached out to him and he joined the band we were off running so that's kind of bringing us up to speed <laughs> well and then you guys formed you guys you know started playing now did you know is was your home base always arizona uh yeah once i well, i moved like i said i lived in missouri for 19 years and then i moved out here so ever since then we've been it's been tempe but we haven't been in uh we haven't been in one place for more than we've been on the road for so long. But once COVID hit, that was the, this is the first time we've sat in one place this long, you know, for since 2012, I believe we've been touring consistently. Imagine, you know, over the last year with not being able to tour, how have you guys managed through that? How have you, how have you been able to overcome, you know, being put not and not you're you know being still and not being able to tour well see that's the thing we can't ever sit still and we have our own studio so we uh instead of sitting in phoenix and melting all summer because we haven't like i said we haven't spent a summer here where it's 120 degrees in so long that we packed our studio up and we moved everything to to the ozark so uh so we just stayed there without well, we did that June 1st. So we stayed there and started work on a new record. So we were here from March. Once we were in Utah when everything got canceled. So March, April, May. So first of June, we packed up our whole studio and drove back home to where I'm from and set up shop and started working on our second, our, on our new record. But we just actually finished wrapping up this week. Well, a lot of people I know are going to be excited to hear that. What, um, what is the collaborative process for you guys? Um, well, we're, we're kind of, we're like old school. I figure how bands used to be, you know, we pretty much all live together. And, uh, so I'll, sometimes I'll come in with the, with a demo that's top to bottom and they all, and then they put the, you know, Jordan will write his bass part. And I kind of tell them that they can kind of feel out how it's going to go. But a lot of this record, since we've been, like I said, we all went back to, actually it's called Monette, Missouri, which is close to where I grew up. And we all stayed there and we wrote it together. So I would go off in the other room and come up with a riff. But yeah, so this time it was super co- collaborative. You know, the other, the other records have been, you know, the, the first record I did most of the writing and the second record, it's around a half and half. And, but this time we had the luxury of, all being at the same place all the time. So it was, it was pretty great. Was there any different about this collaborative process? I mean, obviously you guys moved your studio to Missouri, but you know, also recording and writing during a pandemic where, you know, you are, like you said, 
you know, being still, not being able to do the things you want to do. I mean, there's obvious differences, uh, but what were some of the biggest? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one was uh, we got, we there was no getting away really because the last record we made was in pretty much four four song stints because we to- were torn so much. We'd be on the road for two months, and then we'd have three weeks off. We'd come home or we'd have two weeks off and we'd come home and go right in the studio. And our producer, Johnny Case from Chicago, so he flew out here. We spent the two weeks we had off working on the four songs and we'd get back in the bus, take back off, gone for another two or three months, come back, do four more songs. So that's why the Sunshine album took a little over two years to make because the touring was so you know, intense. But this time around, when we moved everything to back to Missouri and worked out of there, we were, it was more, you know, I think we did nine songs once or something like that. And so it got a little more stressful, but also the benefit of being back there, we're 10 minutes from the creek and 30 minutes from, you know, Table Rock Lake. So if we, if we started getting any kind of, you know, rider's block or anything, we would just jump in the Jeep and go to the creek and crawdad or swim or whatever. <laughs> It turned into more of a Mark Twain type of atmosphere, you know, mm-hmm. which came through, I think, on the record. Well, that's my next question. You know, writing and playing during this time, you 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 mentioned, you know, you you also write about personal experiences. You write about observations. How did this moment in time affect your creativity? Well, uh, being back in Missouri like we were for the summer had me around, you know, my family, uh, and a little more than I'd been in a while, you know, being always being on the road. So, um, you know, I, there's just my sister's going through some troubles. So that kind of seeped in. I wrote a song, there's a song about her on here. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know. And there's a bounciness to it that, uh, that I think it has more of a, has more of a Stones vibe because that's kind of what we were pushing for is more of that looseness on this record versus our last album. And where, you know, where there's a bunch, where most bands right now, you know, you got Greta Van Fleet and, and stuff like this that are really using the, really riding that Zeppelin thing, which I love very much. And we're huge fans of it. But uh, where those bands are kind of going and taking a lot after Zeppelin, we, we thought nobody's, doing anything loose and, and like, you know, nobody's doing anything with stones-ish. <laughs> so we kind of always kind of tend to go in the opposite direction that the other bit that, you know, that anybody's doing at this point. So being in the country, uh, literally, you know, camping out and, and doing everything that I grew up doing, I think really, you know, sunk in and seeped into the songwriting and the way we recorded it. Did you find yourself being a little bit maybe darker on this on this uh, album in terms of lyrical content, just because of the situation surrounding everybody? Yeah, I mean we're not a political band or anything like that, but there's a there's an opening track on the new record that's called "Youth Is Wasted on the Young," and uh, you know just some of the title tracks, and, and that one really, uh, you know, we were I, I think that some politics slipped into that just you know 
and when you hear it, I think you'll get it because it's pretty bombastic and it opens the album. But definitely, I think lyrically, uh, it did, which is kind of a first because we had so much time to reflect on what was going on and all the craziness that was happening. And, and when we're on the road and you're riding, we're, you know, we're in our own little bubble. You know, we, we were out on tour uh, in March whenever we got the call that there was a pandemic and to come home and we had no idea. <laughs> they said uh, we were in Utah and the last show got canceled on St. Patrick's Day and uh, we were on our way to it and management calls and says, hey guys, you know, the wrestling tour's canceled, come home and uh, and if you can, you might grab some hand sanitizer, water and toilet paper and we kind of looked at each other like, what the hell are they talking about? And so we were getting gas at the time and I was, I just said to the guys, I'm going to go over to the grocery store and get some water, I guess. And, and I went in there and it was like, a, the shelves were empty. It was like a sci-fi movie. We were, it was such a, you know, so crazy. So, so that being said, it, you know, we were out on the road and we had no idea that was going on. So, so being in one place where, you know, there was TV all the time and, and people we were around watch the news. We don't even watch the news. So, uh, I think that that had a lot to do with, with it lyrically. Yeah. I imagine, you know, I, I was just thinking what a couple of weeks ago about, you know, what movie studio is going to put out the movie about the pandemic. And I, I, was, uh, I was saying to myself, why would anybody want to go see that and relive it? You know, like, like well, we yeah. all lived through it. Like, what do I want to go through all this again? And, see this for two hours and then walk out of the movie theater all pissed off about what I already went through. And I was pissed off about that. Oh yeah. Well, it's funny you say that too, because, um, when this all went down, we got approached to do a documentary to be involved in a documentary about how, how it's affected the music business. Uh, because we were, you know, our record was just breaking and we had, you know, three songs in the billboard top 40 and this guy, he, Jeremy's his name, Simmons, a great director. And he was a friend. We're like, yeah, you know, we'll do some interviews. And then when he was hanging out with us at the time, then Sunshine happened to hit 16. That was our first top 20. So he kind of reversed the whole idea of, of the movie to be around how to have more of a positive spin of how, how a band can be successful, how a band was successful during such a trying time. And it turned out really well, and we're still, he's still working on it, and uh, it's ready to come out. But we got uh, Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony's in it, uh, Jim Atkins from Jimmy Eat World, uh, Alice Cooper, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of, of people that, you know, people going on tour, and uh, and it got sh- sh- cut short, you know. So it's, uh, it's, not all, it's, it's not a sad movie, I don't think, but it's, uh, it's pretty informative about how how it's working. And so it's in, so we're waiting to shoot the end of the movie for when we can actually play a show, <laughs> you know, the legit show and, and it'll be, a, you know, kind of an epic comeback type thing. What's that like when you're have this successful piece of music, this successful album that's resonating with people, that's reaching people. And then everything gets put on pause. Well, that's frustrating for sure. Yeah. Uh, we didn't, but we're, again, it goes back to us being in our bubble because nothing really changed for us. Uh, especially when sunshine hit 16, we weren't, we were barely even 
I don't even think we were on the road. Or yeah, we'd already gotten pulled off the road. So not being able to, to play shows when your song is is you know sixteen on the charts was really brutal. So um, that being said, uh, it, we didn't. We it's not. I mean, we believe me. We checked the charts every every week that they came out. <laughs> it was like Christmas morning every you know to see where we were. But but as far as uh, changing this, it just drove us more. You know, because we we were like, if we can hit sixteen, you know, we can make top ten. So we just it just made us work harder. I imagine too that being able to work on an album during this time, you know, kind of packing everything up going into your cave, so to speak, and just recording music and kind of tuning what you can tune out is kind of like a relief in that you're, you, you turn your focus from these crazy times and the, and the frustration of being pulled off the road with this successful album to, all right, let's just go in and let's just cut some tracks and write some music and let's just, let's just do that that had to be helpful for you guys. Oh, it, it was very therapeutic just because we had a goal set instead of, you know, if we'd have just came, came back to Phoenix and kind of hung around and, you know, and our, our, our studio here doesn't have any windows. So that would make it even worse, you know? Uh, but once we decided we were going to pack up and go back, it was, it was just another, we were on a mission, you know, to make a really great record in, his, in really bad times. <laughs> and it, I think we got that accomplished. But it, it helped drive us for sure. Yeah, I, I, and I also have to think too, you know, when you talk about being having to be therapeutic, I also, it also can be very inspirational. Like, you know, whenever you hear the finished product of the music, you're always going to know when this was recorded. And you're always going to know that you were able to do this and persevere through a very tough time. It had to be a, a challenging moment with the, you know, the obvious things going on, but also maybe bring the band closer together. Did, did that happen? Yeah, I mean, if that's even possible, because we, like you said, we're already connected to the hit. But um, it, it did it, it you know, kind of a you know, Three Musketeers type situation is what we've got. Because it's us three against everybody else when we're playing live. So, um, but being in the in the basement where we were, and uh, and pretty much vacationing together is what it was. Because <laughs> we would play, we would work, and then we'd go camp out at the creek for you know for a while, a few days, and we'd go back to work. So, um, so being able to go back and kind of get in the country where there's no distractions either you know that was the thing too we couldn't go back there if we stayed here they shut everything down so you couldn't go anywhere do anything see any of your friends just because of the risk and we'd all we'd already been together so we'd been quarantined you know we'd, we'd always go from the bus to the stage and then back to the bus so uh i think it was the last day of driving or something like that so we just thought hell we're always together with this go quarantine in Missouri and, and where I'm from it's such a small town I think they've been quarantining since the 30s <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah I, I've often uh, said that I'm, I'm going to still social distance even when things get back to normal you know yeah I, I mean I don't mind the mask thing because 
sometimes when you're out, it's like you want to keep to yourself anyway. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like, you know, like I said, you know, you, you had to pause everything. Now you've got this new album. Where does Black Moods go from here? You know, everything is still in a wait-and-see approach and, and unknown. A lot of bands have put a pause on release dates for their albums. What are your thoughts on that? Are you, are you still going ahead with the schedule with whatever it is? Are you considering maybe holding on to this a little longer before you release it until you know what happens? Yeah, we're not putting anything out just yet because we just released the video for Home, which is the last song on the Sunshine record. So we just put the video out. And uh, and so, and because our record's not final or done anything. Johnny just, we finished wrapping up here Saturday, last Saturday, I guess. And uh, so he's back just doing some mixes right now. And uh, so we're still looking at another, you know, month or two before the artwork and everything's done. So we'll probably, you know, we're looking at maybe putting a new single out in the summer. So we're not in any rush. Yeah. I mean, all you have right now is time. So, you know, before you you make any decisions on things, I I have to feel that things will sort themselves out, right? I mean... At some point, you know, people are going to get vaccinated. You know, the numbers are going down right now. Hopefully they continue. Let's keep our fingers crossed. The weather will get better eventually. And hopefully, maybe by the end of summer, early fall, shows are starting to happen again. I don't know. Yeah, you know, we were supposed to have one in April uh, at a festival in Florida. I think it was us and Lifehouse and a few other bands. But that got, I think that's getting pulled. So our next, I think our next show is July, isn't that the festival? And then October is, um, is one in Sacramento with My Chemical Romance and Metallica. So the October one they're, they're holding on to and they think it's going to de- definitely happen. But as far as anything before that, it's all up in the air. And as far as, you know, you mentioned the music business and you mentioned, you know, the, the, beginnings of the documentary that you were going to be in had more of a, I don't want to say negative tone, but more of a realistic tone of what things are like for a lot of bands and a lot of musicians turned out to be a positive. I can't wait to see it. But when you think about what you're doing and how you've been on the road for so long, now you had a break, forced break to put out this music. Do you feel rock and roll is, is a, on the verge of a resurgence? Yeah, well, that's the thing, too. Um, we've always heard, everybody says, like, rock, is, rock and roll is dead. They've been saying that shit since, uh, you know, since it started in the 60s. They didn't, you know, they thought, uh, you watch all these old, uh, or not old, but any of the Beatles documentaries, any of that, a lot of the questions were, uh, you know, what are you going to do when this is over? This can't last forever, you know, it's a fad. And then that goes on and the doors come out. Same thing with that, you know, your rock is dead. And in the 70s, even when disco came in, rock is dead. And there it came back. And then the, the 80s came and, you know, Guns N' Roses. And, you know, because when the new wave hit after after disco and all that stuff, they're like, oh, rock is dead, it's new wave. And then after that, you get Guns N' Roses. And then, then, uh, then the hair metal clogs the thing, <laughs> clogs the artery of, you know, the business and then here comes Nirvana and then 
it goes again and then it goes through the nineties and then, you know, the boy bands pick up and then, you know, and then that shit goes away. And then, and then here you are now with, you got bands like Greta and uh, Dirty Honey and uh, uh, Blue Stones and stuff like this, that uh, uh, Bad Flower, that are, that are, you know, rock bands. Kings of Leon, those guys have been carrying through the killers. So, um, you know, it always, I think it, there's a cycle. There's a, it's always a trend that's where um, eventually people get tired of just hearing somebody sing to a computer, you know, or, you know, fake beats, you know. It, I think guitars, drums, and bass will always pull through. Three guys that actually make music and having chemistry on stage is a lot more entertaining to me than, you know, one girl lip syncing with a bunch of dancers behind her. Even though it's nice to look at, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I come from the band, uh, I'm a rock and roll fan. I'm a music fan. So it's not just, I don't like like that kind of stuff. It's just, you feel more whenever you're watching a band like The Killers or, uh, you know, or Foo Fighters, Kings of Leon, or they have that chemistry together and it put out those passionate songs. You know, we just had the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominations come out today. And, of course, everyone's talking about who's not on the list and why isn't this band or this artist in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there's people that are not right. that, that shouldn't be on there. And I'm at the point now where who cares what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does? Like, they do this every year, and people get fired up, and people voice their opinions. And then it quiet, you know, it gets quiet again. And then they do it again. It's the same cycle. Rock and roll really has never been accepted by the mainstream. It never has been, you know, the the you know the the genre that's put up on a pedestal. We all look back and we talk about the influences of the Beatles and the Stones and CCR and Zeppelin, and that's great. But even those bands during their beginnings and during the height of their popularity will were still you know you know snubbed by the mainstream right you know i mean oh yeah you know so so i i was talking to to blake allard from the band joyous wolf and he said something oh really, yeah i love it yeah he said something really interesting he's like i don't care you know what's happening you know outside of what we're doing if we make good music people will find us and that's really what it's all about yeah yeah i yeah i agree with you on that completely because you know, what matters is what, what it means to you. You know, I've never, uh, Rolling Stone panned every Zeppelin record that came out, you know, and, and that's one thing that should be a lesson learned right there. Right. right. Absolutely. <laughs> everything. That's, I mean, you don't even say anymore. It's like, you got a magazine that's so big and, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, they, they know they were wrong now. <laughs> and they probably admit it to it. It's like, how did they not? How did they trash every one of those records? And they're they're great. Uh, so uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's to each of their, each of their own. But uh, yeah, that's the same with us. We don't we don't we never hopped on any trends. We've been we've been you know riding the same river for a while. You know, since we started, we always just played what felt good and what we believed in. Nothing else. We weren't doing anything. We never changed our style because you know, new metal was in. So it's, oh, we got to be a new metal band and then change it back to, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I can't even tell you. I can't name another genre that, you know, anything. We never had to, we never went through the turntable stage where we had a DJ scratching in our songs. We never did any of that. Then, you know, we were, we were inspired by the, 
like, you know, police, cream, Jimi Hendrix experience, the James gang, these badass three piece rock and roll bands that just go out there and play as hard as they can. Yeah. I, I don't know why we think that we need approval from places like the rock and roll Hall of fame, or if we need a band to play the super bowl it's never been about that for me. You know, it's never been about the popularity, the mass popularity. If you if you want to go by that idea where everybody loves something that you love, well, an artist like Britney Spears is very popular. She sells millions of albums. That doesn't mean her music's the best, right? Doesn't mean the, her music right. is the greatest. Sure, people like it. She has her fans. But just, you know, it, whether you sell 50 million records or 50,000 or 5,000, whatever the case is, it doesn't, that doesn't, that should never define what is great. And it should never be defined by what's accepted by the mainstream, you know, review or the mainstream critics that what's good, what's good is what's good to you and what's good to the individual. And there's enough individuals out there that, yeah, maybe rock and roll was kind of taken a back seat with relevancy but it's still thriving. There's still new bands coming out every day, putting music on YouTube or streaming services that are really good, that are really awesome. So that should give everybody hope that rock and roll is never going to die. Rock and roll is always going to be around. And th- does it matter if it if it's played in arenas or does it ma- or, or clubs? It, it, as long as it's being played, that's all. It's, it's that's the most important thing. Man, Fender guitars had their best year ever this year last year, you know, for the sales. So that tells you something. You know, people are picking up guitars. They're playing them. It's a thing. It's still a deal, you know. It's not... That's even more... That should say even more that the fact that they're... That they had the best year ever and when they they started in the 50s, you know. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So the people are still in the playing guitar, whether it's rock and roll or bluegrass or country or, or anything else. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that rock and roll isn't accepted by the mainstream. You know, I, I kind of like being in the club of rock fans or, or you know, in the rock and roll community that kind of you know, has, has people thumb their nose at us. That's, that's kind of, that's rock and roll right there, right? That is rock and roll. Uh, so I was going to say that is, yeah, that, that's what, I think that's what it was built on, you yeah. know, the unacceptance of, uh, of the, uh, I don't know. Of, of the, the masses. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the thing about the Beatles and the Stones, that was like, parents weren't supposed to like, especially the Stones, oh my gosh. I just watched Crossfire Hurricane and that, you know, their publicist was so smart, they just went the other way, where the Beatles were, you know, kind of the guys next door, the Stones are the guys that are going to rob your house. <laughs> you know? So they're like, I think one of his lines was, would you let, one of the headlines in the paper was, would you let your daughter or sister, would you let your sister date her own stone? And that, you know, they pointed that stuff themselves and it was just, it was supposed to be about rebellion. That's what rock and roll was and is. Yeah. And I've said, I think, what do I know? Yeah. I've said this (laughs) countless times on this podcast that, you know, with the youth and the young kids being at home, e-learning, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of angst and the time is ripe for rock and roll to thrive again. And because rock and roll needs that angst that needs that frustration to really be what it's about. And there's yeah. nothing, if, if something good comes out of this pandemic, 
I think it is the resurgence of rock and roll. I think it's it's right on the horizon. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope so because, well, I think once this thing lets up, uh, everybody's just so itching to be out and about again and see like, you know, that's the one thing he's, I've seen on social media uh, the most is uh, people joking around what they would give, you know, pay for an overpriced beer at a rock concert. <laughs> so I think it's going to, I think it'll be good when it comes back around. Well, Josh, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. This has been a blast. I, I am so happy that you did this uh, for the Hook Rocks. Big fan of the band. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and looking forward to the new music, man. I, I can't wait. I'll get it to you as soon as it's done. That's awesome. I, I appreciate it. All right, brother. You take care. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, everybody, that's Josh Kennedy from the band The Black Moods. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.